to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. A couple of episodes ago, I invited all of you to give me more direct feedback on the podcast. And I said, email me and we could set up a video or phone call. And these calls have been happening over the last few weeks. And it's been amazing. It's been just completely delightful. I've spoken with people from Australia, New Zealand, Boston, Tacoma, Washington, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Salt Lake City, Boston, Atlanta. And interestingly, only one person from the top six places where Back from the Abyss gets downloaded. Our top six download places are Denver, Fort Collins, Chicago, Salt Lake City, Atlanta, and New York. Oh, no, wait, we had one in Salt Lake, one in Atlanta. But I have to say, um, making a podcast is really an interesting process because you know Chris and I are putting our heart and soul into this and we put this out there and you know we get emails and I get texts from people I, I get feedback but it's sort of it feels like doing a a concert or a, or a big presentation where you can't see anybody's faces or hear any of the reactions so every time we release an episode I'm on our server and I'm looking where it's getting downloaded and I'm thinking who's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa that's listening and who is in Ridgeway, Colorado and who is in Melbourne, Australia and it's just so fascinating, interesting to me that you know I and the storytellers are uh, sharing these really intimate things but with this offer to speak with listeners, oh my gosh it was amazing so I set up these video calls with people and boom, they pop on the screen, and instantly there was this really unusual and powerful connection. So, you know, I think on their end, and and many spoke to this, that hearing my voice and my stories and the podcast, it, it felt like people really kind of knew me and could trust me from the get-go. And even in the letters people wrote to ask to do a video chat, uh, people shared some really powerful, hard stuff. And on my end... It was completely thrilling because I'm just wondering who is who is the audience like who is out there and what do they think and these video calls were completely bliss for me. I learned a lot. I cried during a couple of them. Um, so wow, it was a completely inefficient way to get uh, podcast feedback because <laughs> if I'd done a survey of all of you, it could have been much more. Um, probably complete and accurate data, but I asked each of the people a lot of questions and I got some interesting uh, data. So one thing I was really pleased with is people said, almost everybody said they'd shared episodes with anywhere from like five to 35 people. And that really warmed my heart because I thought if you share one of these episodes, it must really be meaningful. About a third of the people I talked to were either therapists or therapists in training. And that's kind of what I thought. I thought the podcast had probably a third to half of its listeners were were therapists. Um, I, one of the questions I asked people is, how many of the episodes have you listened to? And almost everybody said all of them, which, granted, there's selection bias there in terms of people who would reach out to me. And some people said they'd listened to them multiple times, which <laughs> that's really sweet. Yeah, that was kind. Um, Another question I have for people was, do you like and listen to the mini episodes? Because those tend to be the least downloaded. So I was wondering, you know, those 8, 10, 12 minute talks that I do alone, do people like those? 
And again, there's selection bias for sure in ter terms of who reached out to me, but those got very positive reviews. So I will be doing some more of those. Uh, almost nobody that I talked to had done an iTunes review, and those are actually very helpful to help spread the podcast around. So anybody listening, take a minute, um, go on to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and write a review. That would be awesome. And surprise, surprise, I learned from many of the listeners that should uh, I retire or um, otherwise become indisposed, Saj would be the number one person that people <laughs> want to hear from. And not surprisingly, the Saj episodes were very beloved, um, along with a bunch of others too. Uh, but I think there's something to the immediacy of Saj's story. And uh, I even shared with a few listeners when we recorded that, Saj and I were sitting face to face, probably like three or four feet apart. And that the energy of that, I think, really came through on the on the recording and, and our friendship and you know the time that we've known each other. So anyway, I'll let Saj know if something happens to me, he, he can take over. So let's move on to today's episode. I've long been deeply curious about the how and the why behind psychiatric healing. What's the special sauce? What are the crux moves? How does someone move from paralysis, hopelessness, and despair into movement and hope and gratitude? And I'm particularly interested in the healing process in psychotherapy. Now, we know that the relationship heals, but what does that really mean? And how exactly does the therapeutic relationship happen? What if the patient has no interest at all in change and, and or doesn't even recognize that change is needed? In this episode, Hilary McBride, a Canadian psychotherapist, researcher, author, and host of her own podcast called Other People's Problems, thoughtfully, eloquently describes her healing journey. Now, many of you listened to a prior interview with Hilary on Back from the Abyss at the end of season one in a podcast swap that I did with Conversations with a Wounded Healer. This episode is different. And Hilary has spoken publicly many times about her brutal struggle with body dysmorphia and disordered eating. But today, she and I go really deep into the therapeutic factors that saved her life. What most helped Hillary might surprise you. It's definitely not what is emphasized in eating disorder programs or therapy modalities such as CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. This episode was a total joy to record. I could have talked to Hillary for hours and hours. And I hope you get as much from it as I did. I remember starting to restrict my food intake when I was in, I think I must have been in grade six. And I think it was around the time of like normal puberty body changes and feeling like uh, this was uncomfortable for me. Somehow this somehow somehow this wasn't okay. Somehow I, I wanted to go back into like my child body. And I didn't have like rapid physiological development. I didn't have, you know, breast tissue develop overnight that made me a target for sexual violence in the way that some young women do. But I remember having this, this red pair of swim shorts and I couldn't put them on. And I was really sad about that as if there was like um, a kind of existential loss. And I think the, the way that I returned that towards myself was one of the earliest 
markers that I could see of the kind of pathology developing. So instead of saying like, oh, yeah, you, you like those. Like, that's so sad to not be able to wear those anymore. Let's find you a new pair in my mind. I, it felt like there was something wrong with me. And I remember telling a few peers about it or it kind of showing up a little bit, the kind of the food restrictions showing up a little bit at school. Yeah. And so I'm checking in with my friends and seeing like, is my perception of reality or my changing body matching yours? And really starting to get curious about how I think how my body was perceived from the outside. And I remember that shift. It didn't happen overnight, but almost like moving outside of my own house sort of phenomena. I think I talk about that somewhat in my writing that there is this, like if our bodily home is um, is ground zero for our existence, it's the place where we are most fully inhabiting our sense of self, then eating disorders and body preoccupation tend to take us outside of that into this like observer of the body, observer of the way we take up space. And I could really feel that happening gradually. Maybe not, I didn't have the language for it at that moment, but almost like moving into this kind of self-surveillance and noticing mm-hmm. how that was showing up in in what I was talking about and what I was preoccupied with. And it didn't really, it didn't really take over. It felt more like this kind of companion um, that I could access if I wanted to or not. And sometimes it would stir up and other times not. And then, and then things really started to shift probably closer to when I was in grade eight. Um, and I started introducing binging and purging, more purging at first into, yeah, I would say almost into my routine, into my daily routine. And that, that experience came from having, it felt like almost like the, um, it feels like a mini existential crisis. I mean, I look at the work that I do now and I see the kind of existential crises people have and I I don't want to diminish my own suffering, but this felt like a very normative developmental thing for someone who's going through puberty and a teenager to think like, my body is changing. How do I manage that? Am I supposed to manage that? Here's a way I can resolve this crisis internally and started to really introduce more eating disorder behavior into my life. And Mm -hmm. do you think it was something... Mm-hmm. That you felt like you discovered yourself, like you discovered number one that you, excuse me, were un, deeply unhappy with your body, and then that you discovered kind of these secret strategy for trying to control that. Or do you remember that? Because I, I think of eating disorders and, and behaviors mm-hmm. as being contagious, almost. And I'm wondering back then, like if you got the idea from someone else or no. had read about yeah. it, or if you, you discovered like your own special secret. Yeah, you know what's. I have this list in my life. This will probably be forever. One of the things that I learned to turn towards with compassion, but I have this list of things that I said I'd never do. And I've done all of them and not in a, I'd never do this. Um, like, you know, I, I'm trying, like more, it feels like moral failures in some way. Mm-hmm. And I remember having an incident on the playground when I was a, a kid, I must've been in grade two. And my friend I remember where we were. She was like, did you know that this is a thing that sometimes people do? They they don't eat, so they lose weight and they restrict, you know, and they purge and they binge. And this is the thing. And I remember saying to her, I would never do that. Mm-hmm. And it was not, it was seven years later or something like that. I can't, I'm, the math might be off on that, but it was quite some time later that I started actively engaging in eating disorder behaviors. And I didn't have any peers at that time who were encouraging me to. I know that that can happen. Like dieting is a way to 
uh, kind of find belonging or social connection. But this was very much a private experience that I think I learned about a long time ago and for whatever reason came to me as an option. And I wasn't reading teen magazines. I wasn't reading um, kind of like heavy diet culture, media content. It it really felt like a, a strategy to manage some internal distress mm-hmm. as it was mediated through the pathway of understanding my body as being the problem. Yeah. It's so interesting that you remember that one incident mm. years before and I've heard other people describe that they can one conversation or just one little moment in time, even years before, for example, eating disorder started that people think that was the seed that just dropped in this field and just waited to grow. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's possible that that, that sticks out to me so much because I made such a decisive declarative statement and then I felt the shame or have felt the shame sense of kind of going back on that statement and saying, oh, wow, I, I did something that I said I'd never do. And that's important to reckon with, like how, how much we m- misunderstand ourselves in terms of what we're capable of or who we think we are or the places that we'll go to, the lengths we'll go to, to manage our own suffering or distress. Like those, those experiences that we have of being desperate and needing to resolve some internal conflict or anxiety or dysregulation really um, allow us to be creative and look for resources that we might otherwise not have access to if we felt better rooted in some other tools. Yeah, and how long did you suffer alone with your secret and your strategies? Yeah, it started to become something that my parents knew about and talked about, but it was a couple years. It was a couple years mm-hmm. of much more moderate level of eating disturbance and pathology than it became in the later years. It started to pick up more when I was like 16, 17, 18. So that window of time between 13, 13 to 15, it seemed like I was better able to manage it, hide it. Um, and I think my parents probably noticed some things like they're perceptive and tuned in, but my body wasn't changing drastically as is the case for many people who are on the eating disorder spectrum that the body doesn't look so different. And so it goes easily unnoticed because we have these, I wouldn't call them tropes necessarily, but maybe um, these under these limited understandings of what eating disorder bodies look like Mm -hmm. that make us miss the kind of normative pathology that flies under the radar Mm-hmm. And it was wasn't till later until I started to to have more notable concerning symptoms that were observable to other people. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'm just remembering something. I'm remembering something interesting that's kind of a part of this. I was at a summer camp when I must have been 11, and I wasn't engaged in any eating disorder behavior at that time. I remember it. But the camp counselor called my parents from the camp and said that they were worried about my eating. Mm -hmm. And my mom sat me down immediately after I got home and said, we got this phone call. We're worried about you. We want to know what's going on. We want to help you. If there's something going on, can you tell us what's happening? And I remember not like being so confused because that wasn't really a part of my life at that point. Mm -hmm. And 
And yet my mom and I have talked about that moment since where she had said she knew something was already going on, but I didn't. It wasn't conscious for me. And I, I would actually argue I didn't think I was really in in the eating disorder at that point. But it does make me wonder, like, what was showing up that someone else said that? Was there something else that was happening that I wasn't even aware of that was concerning? But it seemed like my mom might have already had her finger on the pulse of something. Um, but the fact that I denied it vehemently because I didn't think that there was anything going on makes me wonder if she was more reluctant in the f- in the future to bring something up or if I was more resistant. Like those things I have yet to explore in much more depth. But there was a, a bit of a mismatch in terms of what she was perceiving, what I was experiencing. And I think that made the something clunky for us yeah. along the way. So how old were you when yeah. your mom said, Hillary, it's time we got to get you some help? Yeah, I think I was, it was right around the time at like 15, 16, um, Mm -hmm. my birthday's in the fall. And I think it was in that summer before, right before I turned 16. And she started working really hard to get me the support that I needed. And I wasn't interested. I wasn't interested at all. (laughs) And so uh, thus ensued a series of, I mean, really just like elaborate deception on my part um, to make the eating disorder go underground further. And then just, I mean, there's no other way to say it. I was just lying to every single therapist that I saw Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't like them and I would get picky and I would be resistant. I would fight with her about going. And at this point I was still doing like outpatient treatment and I would just, you know, just really put up a fight and lie about every single thing, Mm -hmm. just every single thing. Do you think you were ambivalent back then about having a problem and you know wanting to hold on to this you know this power this this control or do you think 15 16 year old you was actually thinking no there's not a problem i got this you, oh, no. you know you all are gr- gravely mistaken i knew there was a problem mm. at this point the the amount of deception shame and secrecy around my behavior the amount of uh, strategy going into planning restriction, um, planning secret exercise, planning binging, planning purging. I mean, there was like this whole full-time job I was doing trying to manage all of those pieces. And it was, it was mine though. It was mine. And I think like I really understand my eating disorder and eating disorders in general through the the framework of Neva Paran, who's an eating disorder scholar who's really influenced my research and academic work. But she has labeled eating disorders as disorders of restricted agency mm. and the bid for agency in one's life through the negotiation of body and eating and kind of managing space and size. And when I look back on my family system and what was happening at that time, there was there was some unrest in the interpersonal dynamics that I felt. Um, we'd had someone move into our home. My brother had moved off to university, who and he was my best friend. And I was in high school, and there was this new person in our home who we were kind of giving housing to. And the disturbance in the dynamic felt like an erasure of the space that was mine. And my mom and I started having much more conflict. My dad kind of played this good cop role and my mom played the bad cop as it, you know, as it were for treatment. And 
I really felt in this power struggle with her to negotiate the things in my life that felt stable and felt mine. And the more conflict we had, uh, the more tense our relationship got, the more resistant I was to her intervention or her, you know, making space for my intervention and the deeper down, down into the eating disorder I dug as a kind of, um, yeah, resource for myself to feel some, some sense of, yeah, agency mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. It's almost like <clears throat> those early years of months and years of eating disorder treatment can seem like addiction treatment. You know, the oh. addict comes and thinks, okay, I know I have a huge problem, but I can't imagine any other way to live. So I have to keep you know, lying and deceiving and doing this. And yeah. thank you, therapist, for trying to help, but I don't want it. Yeah. And there was this, this in my 16th year, there was an intervention actually on the part of some of my peers. We had gone away uh, for a big music festival and had come back and my parents that, you know, everyone had, I guess, made this whole plan to, to intervene. And I think they announced it to my parents and I think my parents went along with it somewhat, although it was news to them. It's not like they were on the inside of this. And I felt extraordinarily isolated uh, mm. and then further resistant to people and, and treatment. And so it was, it reminds me of that, that thing that we see, um, the interventions around addiction and how in that situation, I felt like I had to choose between community and the eating disorder. And the eating disorder at that point felt like the only thing that understood me, mm-hmm. the only thing that was mine. And there was no way I was going to give it up. Mm-hmm. And it's seeming like from the way you describe it that we could replay this scenario a hundred ways, you know, with your parents trying Mm -hmm. different things and different therapists and different programs. And for whatever reason, at that time in your life, the eating disorder was going to win. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, it was, again, I, I can't emphasize this enough. It was doing something for me. It was really offering me something I'm thinking in terms of parts language and kind mm-hmm. of what it was doing in terms of protecting parts of my myself that felt um, overwhelmed with pain and loneliness and shame. And I understand now what it was doing. I didn't understand then. And I didn't understand that there could be something better on the other side. Mm-hmm. It just felt like the most necessary resource to support me uh, to be me in the world. And all of these people were asking me to give it up. And that felt like so threatening. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So how did you move? I'm so curious how you mm. go from, again, I think this state that now you see as a therapist working with these problems. And I see where you have someone who's so desperately clinging on to their eating disorder and this way of living and this control and this sense yeah. of agency, as you said. And then there has to be the shift, mm-hmm. the shift towards change and acceptance and mm-hmm. compassion. And what did that look like for you? Yeah. I wish there were, there, there are some specific moments that I can point to, and those are really nice and they make for great sound bites and <laughs> really help to clarify um, some specific turning points. But I wish it was more, um, I wish it was sexier than this, but I felt like 
by moving out of my parents' house, which was probably at one point extraordinarily terrifying for them, knowing how deeply I was in the eating disorder. And starting a dating relationship with the person who I'm now married to and having some freedom around what I did with my time and my interests and my creativity created a foundation for me to feel like I had more space and um, voice in my life. And I think it was under those conditions that I was allowed to start examining what might be under the surface and some of the pain for me. So those are harder things to point to or manufacture, especially in a treatment setting. But it was it seems counterintuitive. Exactly. You think of, you know, this, you know, your child who's struggling terribly with whatever. Oh, and you want to bring them in closer to the nest, more support, more treatment, more observation, more love. And interesting, you said what one of the key points uh, was that you actually left the nest. Yes. And I can yes. imagine your parents like, oh no, she, oh, what's yeah. going to happen if she, when she leaves? And yet for you, that was the first steps of change. Which I think speaks to a broader principle that needs to be considered. Instead of one size fits all treatment, where is the person? Where is the person mm-hmm. underneath the eating disorder? What does the person need? What What purpose is it serving? And I know that that doesn't manualize very well. And I know that that doesn't apply to, you know, work really well in formalized treatment settings where you're trying to get, you know, outcome measures and get people pumped through beds and things like that. But I, for me to feel like I could have a voice in my own life was one of the most important things Hmm. that I needed. And that will not be right for some other people. I wouldn't, shouldn't say voice because I think we need to have um, responsibility taking an agency in treatment for it to be effective. But, but there would be some people who moving away from their parents' home when they're really in the throes of an eating disorder, it would be not good. It would yeah. be very Could be a dangerous. death sentence. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of prescribing that as the most clinically significant factor in predicting my recovery, you know, that's, that's not accurate. But mm-hmm. for me as a person, all the way that all of these things factored in together, I think, laid the soil for, I mean, use the seeds metaphor earlier for new seeds to mm-hmm. be planted or for me to, to dig up things that were, that were already growing there. Yeah. All those sessions before you left home, were those mostly for naught? I mean, that was a ton of time and energy and oh. therapist appointments and and probably hundreds of hours, I don't know, oh. and different therapists. And did, did it set up any kind of scaffolding or looking back, do you think, no, like you were so fixed in it that that was really kind of lost treatment time and, you know, the real therapy, meaningful therapy didn't start till you left home? I think that looking back, I am glad that my parents put all of that time and energy and money in because even though I wasn't ready, there is never a single question in my mind that they cared or that they were doing everything they could. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of the broader story of how I fit into my attachment like frame um, context, 
the knowing that I have that I was never given up on feels just as important for my therapeutic outcome as the part inside of me that had to choose to say yes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I have, I mean, I will probably for a long time be in a really um, interesting relationship with guilt and shame. That feel, those, those are easy places for me to go in my own internal life and my internal world. And so I, I look back at th- that and think, oh, I'm so sorry it cost you so much for me to not move an inch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry you spent so much money on therapy that I was lying in and driving me to appointments and getting me into treatment programs and getting me into, you know, getting me assessed by different psychiatrists and physicians and inpatient and outpatient and private. And I'm so sorry. I feel so sad mm. that they gave so much mm-hmm. and that they had to struggle and that it couldn't relieve any of the distress that they felt as parents watching me hurt so much. Mm-hmm. But I know. Did you think you were prone to guilt and shame? Like if we looked back on little Hillary, you know, five-year-old Hillary, eight-year-old, oh, 12, yeah. that you had you know, sort of a temperamental disposition to that. And then this, all the eating disorder and the lying and the secrecy and um, mm. that that just filled up that shame bucket the, I or, understand or did it, the eating disorder kind of or did the shame come from that because i'm again i do a lot of addiction work and i'm uh-huh, thinking like uh-huh. there's addiction just builds so much guilt and shame oh yeah and it could be chicken or the yeah. egg sometimes people go into addiction because they're just very much tending towards kind of guilt and shame and other times no it's all the horrible things that happen in the addiction yeah. that lead to that yeah for me, the only way to understand it really is like through my theoretical framework, which I think is what, something I'm drawn to because it makes sense of my own experience as well. But I I have been a highly sensitive kid. I had been a highly sensitive kid from the moment I was born. Just one of those people, my mom had to wash my laundry three times, you know, once with soap, twice without, otherwise I'd break out in hives and, mm-hmm. you know, allergies and all sorts of things like right from the get-go. And I think also extraordinarily in tune emotionally, in tune on a sensory level and maybe in a transpersonal way as well. And the the experience of being a little human and feeling such intensity constantly Mm. um, lends itself well to the different ways that our society caps that to make that go away. And I think of shame as a cap on that. It is the, it's the inhibitory affect. It's the like, I'm going to tuck this away. I'm going to tuck me away. I'm going to tuck my knowing about the world and my body and, and our context and these relationships away. And I'm going to make it about me. I'm going to make it that I'm bad um, as a way to, as a way to get through this world and make you comfortable and make you comfortable and make you comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I think about, Shame as the, again, as another strategy for managing what I didn't otherwise know how to manage. And so if we come back to this moment of being in elementary school and noticing my body is changing, I think I'd already had a kind of well-developed capacity to turn things against myself as a way to make them disappear.
jumping back to yeah. to you leaving the nest, finding some space and mm-hmm. agency and just room to be. Yeah. And then you're continuing in therapy and now it sounds like there is a different yes. context that you're ready to to engage and, and start yes. to be honest. Yeah. And I had um Again, a number of, I think at this point when I was in university, I was still being very, very, very closely involved with an outpatient program that was constantly trying to get me, you know, more resources. And I was playing cat and mouse with them a little bit because I wasn't so convinced that that was something I needed or wanted, but it was obviously clear from, you know, some of my vitals and things like that, that I needed to be followed very closely. Um, But I I had a new therapist and she was a little different than the other ones. Um, this was in an outpatient treatment program and I wrote about her quite a bit in my first book. She, she didn't really want to talk about the eating disorder so much. Mm. And that was very interesting to me. <laughs> that was very interesting. She's to doing me. an end around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was very, I was very intrigued by that. And we, we drummed, we watched TED Talks and discussed them. She introduced me to feminist theory. Uh, we did art, we did movement. Uh, we talked about really like critical analysis of sociocultural and sociopolitical contexts that we're in. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't normally like now as a clinician, I'd be like, oh, that was like really took me <laughs> That would really take a person out of their inner world. (laughs) But if a person is really not wanting to be in their inner world and they're wanting to develop, they're needing space to find their voice in the world, I think you can go in the back door. And I think that 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 was a way for me. Mm -hmm. And so she, she really invited me to start to think critically about the world that I was in. And I remember it was, I was not feeling very much at that point. Like I wouldn't say that I was, you know, fit the criteria for alexithymia or had, you know, I don't know. I won't go down that rabbit trail. Yeah. But, but I just kind of numbed. Just numbed. Just overall numbed just to the numbed. world and to yourself. Yeah. yeah. And really not at the same time, kind of like very desperate and anxious internally because there's all this stuff going on, but not feeling real feelings and not feeling connected to myself or regulating emotion. And I remember getting angry in her office, not at her. It was kind of about, really, it was about the social construction of women's bodies in a Western context and feeling for the first time like I wasn't vain for having an eating disorder. Mm. I was being a good woman. I was being everything that I had been told to be to accrue social value. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that I had somehow been told or shown that there had to be less of me for me to have like jockey power some way. And that somehow then I had felt bad about that or like I had been, I had, it had caused me suffering and I had then blamed myself for that. Like there was a kind of shifting that took place where I was able to see there was much more going on here than my body being bad and needing to go away. And it really, um, in the same way that kind of psychedelic experiences do, like opened, it felt like I saw the interconnectedness between all of these systems that had kept me and stuck and had reinforced 
the way that my pain originated and how it manifested and then how it was praised and then pathologized, like really this unfolding of understanding of the complex web of systems that were showing up as I lived and moved through the world with so much pain. Mm-hmm. Do and you think it, your mm-hmm. therapist, do you think she read that in you and she thought, this is the way to Hillary, I'm going to do, I'm, you know, we're going to bond over all this other stuff and sort of intellectual and somatic and playful level and and that, but what's going to grab Hillary is sort of seeing the eating disorder in in a social context and a feminist context and and that, or do you think that just sort of organically unfolded as the two of you just became closer and mm. you know, it was very much her, her style of work. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was unique to me. And there were a number of times that she would make generalized statements about women with eating disorders that told me, oh, this is this is your worldview playing mm-hmm. out here and how you choose treatment and intervention. But I also felt very seen by her and I felt known. And it was like she I remember she said something to me that has I've, I will never forget. I've never forgotten. She said, women with eating disorders are philosopher queens. Mm. And it was, it was like I understood on some deeper level that there was a goodness in me that had somehow gotten hijacked mm-hmm. by the eating disorder, but that I was not all bad. And that there was actually something very special about the way that my brain and nervous system worked. Mm-hmm. The most meaningful impact was the humanizing impact. Like, oh, there's good in me. There's good in me. You know, therapists often talk about this idea of is it the relationship that heals or the modality? And it Mm. sounds like you you described her really interesting way of engaging you. Mm -hmm. And as you look back, I wonder, was the special sauce there, A, you were ready, Mm -hmm. B, she knew how to show you that she could see the the beauty and the goodness and the the awesomeness in you, was it her techniques that she is again, she, as you said, she didn't even go to the eating disorder. She went around it mm-hmm. and did a very skillful, um, <laughs> snuck in the back door yeah. with, you know, and knew, knew how she could reach you. Yeah. I mean, all of the, all of the variables that we hear about treatment efficacy come to mind, like, you know, intervention, chosen the relationship um client factors external factors um, Mm -hmm. like the things that we can't quite put our finger on the the client readiness um all those things really feel like they make sense here it was it was the right person and the right time and the right approach for me and and i think there was a lot that she did that didn't land for me Mm -hmm. but I felt safe enough with her that I had been able to access anger and anger felt like a return of my voice. And as soon as I started to feel like I could have a voice about things, I could push back a little bit on her. uh, And that felt like a choice that I could make. And that felt really safe to do with her. 
uh, and her style of holding me allowed that to happen. Um, and I could, I could really lean in to negotiating who I was in that space. Like I think about the Wallen talks about therapy is like the developmental crucible within which we can rediscover and reimagine the emergence of the self. And especially when we are in a secure attachment with someone and that, that really felt different because when I think about, um, I don't want to get so neo-Freudian and and do this comparison with my mother as well. I mean, it's hard not to in this moment, (laughs) the low hanging fruit, but I, I think about how my mom and my, our relationship was so rigid because the more I was in the eating disorder and the more afraid she was and the more tightly she controlled me and the harder it was for me to then have agency because it was threatening probably to my safety and to her sense of control over my health outcomes. And so we just got into this really gnarly groove together. And I got to negotiate some of these very important developmental steps, like pushing back and being a teenager and having anger and figuring out what my place in the world was with a therapist who could hold that Mm. and who gave me room to do that. And I very much felt myself leaning into that process and like concurrently was joining consciousness raising groups and engaging in feminist action and was falling in love with this man who was the way that he has loved me through my life has been one of the most therapeutic, transformative, transpersonal, holy experiences I think I'll ever have. Mm. And I can't separate that out from this other experience of therapy. Yeah. Right. I mean, you you, you began healing in relationship with her. Yes. You began healing in relationship with him. Oh my goodness. And this, like the beautiful thing too. I remember this therapist, her name was Liz. Her and I had an argument one time because I came in and I said, I want to talk to you about sexuality. I want to talk to you about this. She's like, yes, it's really hard for women who have eating disorders. They often shut down. There's kind of the, you know, you heard of sexual anorexia and she really missed me. And I was like, no, 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 no. I think there's something happening for me here. I can feel pleasure in my body. I can feel pleasure in my body and that feels good. And it reminds me that my body is safe. And it was like, she, she didn't know how to, she wasn't <laughs> expecting me to say that. <laughs> she said, wait, you're way further along. You're in yeah. chapter 12. Yeah, that's right. You're supposed yeah. to be shut down. Yeah, exactly. And I think not everybody has experiences like that with like a, a first sexual partner. But for me in my relationship with this man, I was, I was safe in my body and his affirmation of safety and creating of this context that was both very nurturing and electric and safe and um, supportive and like all of these things created again another relational context where I could relax into the experience of being myself without it creating conditional belonging and it was it was an essential part of my treatment to be loved by him I wish there was a a better way to say that It sounds like she recognized that your eating disorder was not the problem. Mm, exactly. It, it was it was yeah. a manifestation of oh. a whole bunch of things, of you being a highly sensitive soul and parent-child and a whole bunch of stuff. 
And yes. did she ever then turn directly into the eating disorder or did the therapy continue to be, as you said, kind of everything, but like everything in the context and the whole scaffolding around it. But did she continue to really not talk about the eating disorder with you? Yeah, she, she really didn't. I had a, a psychiatrist and a dietitian and a GP who were, who were doing more of that heavy lifting. And then, I mean, we can get into the, I preferred probably not to get into much extensive detail about this, but she, she ended up leaving that position before we were done treatment together and a new therapist came in and I started to have a regression in terms mm -hmm. of what was happening in my growth and my healing. And that was actually probably the last time that I was connected to an inpatient program. Mm -hmm. And it was after we had done all of this beautiful work. And I wouldn't say it's because Liz was gone. It was like, there was all of these things. She, she wasn't the one holding the keys to my recovery at that point, but there was a kind of sense that there was lots of pathology that was still ongoing and it really needed to be actively addressed because yeah. the process of me philosophizing about <laughs> the social construction of women's bodies was like helpful, but probably not um, helpful enough for my medical team. Yeah. And I had a therapist at that point who, who was like so lovely and so kind, but I don't think she knew how to handle that. I, needed a place where I could experiment with being spicy a little bit and like having some <laughs> like, like push pull as a way to be like, Oh, good work. Yes. I'm, I'm fully here and you'll, you're fully here. And she would want me to do lots of mindfulness if I, you know, had a, had an opinion about something and challenged her. And it seemed like to kind of, again, to cap, to cap me, mm -hmm. uh, to under the guise of like regulation. And I just remember thinking, I said to her on so many occasions, this new therapist, like I, I'm, I'm trying to ask you for what I need and I feel like you're not hearing me. And I, I did that so many times, like in a heroic way, like a patient should not have to on that many occasions be like, you're not seeing me. You're missing me. Can we try this? Can we try this? I want to do this in therapy. I want to go here. Can we try this? And it was like, I was asking her to do attachment and psychodynamic work with me. And she wanted to teach me how to deep breathe. Mm. Yeah. And, and so that, that relationship went on at some, to, for some degree, because when I came out of being an inpatient, I was back into this outpatient setting and she was the therapist who connected me to all of these other like care providers who I needed to be close to my nutritionist and my psychiatrist and whatnot. But eventually that a really big shift was when I said like, I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of this program anymore. This isn't working for me. I'm stable enough. I need to find a therapist and a community where I am not so over identified with the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And that was another big, big like movement point for me. Mm. Uh, they had wanted me to go back into treatment, into a residential program, not into an inpatient program in a hospital setting, but like a community-based residential program. And I decided that instead I was going to go to graduate school and everyone thought I was absolutely nuts. Mm, leaving the nest again. Yes. <laughs> leaving, leaving your intensive eating disorder you're, nest. Like, nope. Yeah, like you're I'm capping me. Like, yeah. mm -mm, I'm getting out of here. Uh, this doesn't feel good. I need a place where I can rehearse what it's like to be my sense of self outside of the label that you're giving me. And I'd like some normal community. I'd like some normal, <laughs> like, mm. interaction. I'm, I'm tired of groups 
where a lot of my peer interaction is with other people who are like at a certain stage of their eating disorder development. And I am so ready to rehearse something that feels whole. And it was, again, another move of agency on my part that I think probably terrified the team. But there was a sense of, I was choosing life. I was choosing myself. And that was the, that's the place that I think all of the recovery comes from. And I, I wasn't worried. So it sounds like you, as you said a few minutes ago, you know, individualizing treatment is so crucial. And for you to be primarily identified as, oh, you have an eating disorder, let's talk about it, or you have an eating disorder, let's do this intensive treatment program, that was not helpful. What not was helpful me. was, yeah. So, but I'm also guessing, although I want to hear what you have to say, that for some people, that is what they need. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is why we need to create clinicians and programs and interventions, which allow us to see the person, to see what the person needs, mm-hmm. uh, instead of kind of blindly applying the same template of response to every single person who comes through the door, because there are some people who will really need that. And it will be the most resourcing, healing, validating uh, nurturing thing for them. Yeah. It reminds me of an attending in residency who said, you know, as we're all learning psychotherapy, we so want an algorithm. We want to paint by number. Mm. We want the, you know, we want direction. He said, but the best therapies are individually created paintings. Yes. He said every, you know, every therapist is going to have his or her own favorite colors and brushes and styles, but each patient client really deserves and needs their own painting and mm-hmm. uh, I just I love this story how this is unfolding because your story I think is very different than than some people's recoveries mm-hmm. but then I think the theme is that you're saying is it's going to be different for everybody yes yeah. it will be and so we need to be adaptable as clinicians we need to be human we need to be able to see people and I think it's really hard to do if we can't see ourselves or haven't been seen. There's a kind of contagion to interconnectedness that allows us to redistribute that back into our our work as healthcare providers. And mm. um, yeah, I could digress about that at length. Yeah. But I do want to say there's a few other pieces that really clicked things for me because those are nice those are nice moments to talk about on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't all just like you know, me lying in therapy for years until Uh I decided to stop. Um, I went back to grad school and of course was still like really interested in eating disorder stuff, but trying to, again, like remove myself a little bit from that and, and figure out how this all fit into this new understanding that I had about social context and decided to start researching body image because I kept reading in the literature body image you know, shows up as this body image issues show up as this precursor to eating disorder behavior. Of course, I now understand it as much more complex than that. But I kept thinking, oh, well, this, this is something I need to research then. 
And of course, research is me search. <laughs> we all know that. We're all just working our stuff out. <laughs> and I I started to find data in in study after study as I'm doing my literature reviews for my research and seeing that there was really quite an abundance of understanding of, around pathology and how it develops, but still this really missing, this big gap in the literature about how do we do well? How do we love our bodies? What does that look like? And and how do we get there? Do, do those people exist? And these these numbers kept showing up over and over and over again, that normative body dissatisfaction is so written into gender identity for women that it might be considered actually part of being a woman in a Western context. And I remember having this kind of like woof reaction to that, like, yuck, that's not true. That can't be true. There's something amiss here. And started off on this journey of understanding what does it mean to love our bodies and how do we instill that from the beginning and what gets in the way, but how do we repair that through our lives instead of just this hyper-focus on pathology, which we can so easily do in the world of psychology. And I know in psychiatry as well, it's kind of the bread and butter and really wanting to have a new angle on the conversation. And it was then that I started to discover embodiment and the research around embodiment as the kind of felt lived experience of being a body, which felt different than this thing that I'd mentioned started happening for me in elementary school, where I moved outside of my body to evaluate my body, to self-survey, to judge. And it was like, oh, that's, oh, that's the process of coming back home again. Oh, I don't have to just look at my body from the outside constantly and say, well, I used to hate what that looks like, but I don't anymore. And, you know, I can love my appearance no matter what. It was like, no, 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 no. There's, there was something that happened even before I thought appearance was the only thing about me. And that was that it was a lot to be in my body. Mm-hmm. And so I had to leave to try to manage that. But maybe, maybe I don't have to leave anymore. Maybe I can come back home and I can clean up the house and I can make it feel cozy inside. Mm-hmm. And embodiment really started to to be this thing that captivated me. And I was researching it and writing about it and learning about it and you know, collaborating with different scholars and eventually ended up writing this textbook with a colleague of mine about embodiment and eating disorders as an innovative approach to treatment to say like, we can't just keep reinforcing the idea that we're cognitive beings who need to evaluate cognition and the cognition of the patient needs to match the idealized version of the cognition of the treat treatment provider as if you know we keep telling women with eating disorders and people with eating disorders you're thinking wrong your thinking is bad Mm. think the way that we think and then you'll Mm. be fixed like no 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 where is where's the lived experience the phenomenology of being human and i remember my my husband came home one night and i'm working on this textbook about embodiment and the lights are off and all he can see is my face lit by the glow of my laptop and it's like 11 at night and I, I had forgotten to get up. I had been there all day. I hadn't eaten. I hadn't stretched. <laughs> I don't think I'd gone to the bathroom in hours. Like in this hyper-focused, like borderline hypomanic episode, just going ape on this research paper, mm. <laughs> but totally disembodied. Mm. And it was this wake-up call for me, like, oh, again, it's not enough to think about embodiment. I need to start practicing it. And it felt like that moment was another 
click into place mm -hmm. of what the journey of recovery looked like. So I started doing more authentic movement and I started engaging in practices that would in allow me to inhabit myself again and pay attention to sensory cues. And that for me felt like, again, the one of the last clicks and most mm -hmm. recent clicks into feeling like, oh, I'm home again. Yeah. What does that look like minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day for you now to be more embodied and realizing mm -hmm. that, you know, your superpower of your cognition and your analytical self is actually getting you into a lot of trouble? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the moment to moment, I would say is like the, it feels like a, a constant tuning in. So instead of my selfness or consciousness, I, w I wish there was a less abstract way to describe this, but it was, it's more like my selfness exists somewhere between my hips and my shoulders instead of self being in my head and I have to dip down into my body mm -hmm. to ask what's going on there. And then I go back up to my head and take the elevator up. It's more of like I'm, I'm inhabiting a core space inside. And so I'm, I'm just noticing and paying attention to things like, oh, I, f I felt that inside of me. Oh, someone said that. I noticed a reaction. What, what does that mean for me? And then integrating almost like going up, taking the elevator up to think, oh, how do I make sense of what just happened? But paying attention to sensory information, noticing comfort. Um, I've been known in my social circle for sitting in very strange ways because <laughs> I'm like, it just feels good for my hips. I'm just, I'm just draping my leg over the back of the couch even though that's not how we typically sit on couches <laughs> because it feels good for my back right now. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't feel interested in, I mean, I'm not going to go outside of what would be a professional way of conducting myself in my workplace or whatnot, but I, I feel so much more comfortable going, Oh, I need this. And I can give that to myself. And whether mm -hmm. this is rest or movement or uh, attention to emotion or food or, uh, a change in posture. It feels like the the dialogue between uh, the sensing and the responding parts of me are like very closely connected, mm -hmm. and and that exists inside me. Yeah. How does embodiment, if it does, translate to more acceptance and self compassion with body image, or or is, or is there a couple steps in between those? Yeah. Well, I think I, I see my body as so much more than the image of it. And so it's almost like I've moved the locus of the locus of control to an internal place instead of the appearance-based place. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it just matters less. It's like, it's, it feels more like an afterthought for me. Um, and I take pride in how I, appear and how I dress myself and hygiene and all of those pieces. But I, I don't feel like my worth or my value or my selfness is restricted to how I evaluate the, the way I show up appearance wise in the world, mm -hmm. even in terms of the shape and size of my body and how, how my body changes as I age and, you know, skin and things like that. It just doesn't 
feel as important because I feel so much more connected to the sense of wisdom that comes from the interoceptive place. It almost sounds like a shift from all form to form and function that you still, as you said, recognize that you know, it's important how we appear in the world and you, you do put importance on that, but you're more, mm-hmm. much more focused on your body and what it can do and how it can move you and bring you pleasure and um, mm-hmm. how it inhabits the world. Yes. And yet I'll, I'll just push back on some of the language a little bit there because I think of the body um, Merleau-Ponty and some of the continental philosophers who've talked extensively about embodiment as the place of consciousness have reminded us that we have these two ways of talking about our body. We have the body as an object and it, mm-hmm. and it's easy for us to inhabit or um, to relate to the body as an it, like a good it but an it, Mm -hmm. but we have this other thing available to us, which is Merleau-Ponty called it um, core sujetif. So the, like the body, the subjective body, the lived body, which has been translated to the body for self, the body as self. And I think about the body less actually as function. So it's almost like neither form or function, more like being. And being yeah. sits in this kind of numinous space that is both um, very um, immediate and uh, transcendent, a very mm. imminent and transpersonal. And being can't be qualified or limited to function, yeah. because where I where I struggle with the function that we the functional relationship we have with our bodies is when the function starts to change. As we age, I I mean, I have chronic pain in my body. I have um, injuries that I'm carrying from traumatic events, car accidents and whatnot. I have reminded myself that my being is still good. My being is for life, Mm -hmm. even when the function is compromised. Yeah. That's so interesting. I'm glad you did push back on that. It makes me think of, you know, this focus on being, it suggests that both meditation and psychedelics could have a really interesting role. Oh yeah. In in body image and eating disorder treatment because the people get so in their minds, so fixated on this visual representation, but you're right, missing the being. I, I love how yes. you describe that. And yeah. anything that can bring us back fully into ourselves, our our being, like right, that we're not just this this reflection in the mirror or or just a functional self, mm-hmm. but that we have this this mm-hmm. energy, this connectedness, this um, amazingness that is us that I think just gets overwhelmed by a lot of other yeah. psychological, psychiatric yeah. stuff. I think you're right. And it's, it's so much so that there's actually a move within the embodiment community to say mindfulness is too restricted to cognition. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so what we need actually is bodyfulness. And this is a term that comes from Christine Caldwell, who's a somatic therapist and you know, instructor and theorist. But to, to be bodyful is to be present to what's happening as the self instead of just noticing again in a kind of detached, cognitive, objectifying way of the self, which orients us, orients us towards 
noticing thoughts, stopping thoughts, changing thoughts. I mean, other things, but this is wordplay. Like it's, it can be semantics, but it can also be a language protest to say, let's inhabit our body, bodily selves in an attuned, compassionate, present way, instead of just noticing our thoughts as the chief experience mm-hmm. of existence. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I'm thinking about, oh gosh, some of the research out of the UK, uh, I think it's Rosalind Watts and the, is it accept, connect, embody model for uh, psilocybin treatment. And her research with her colleagues has looked at how how embodiment is this theme that is woven through psychedelic experiences where everything that is understood, any of the insights, any of the interpersonal, relational, cognitive changes that happen are felt and sensed and lived from the place of the subjective self, which in those moments is also somehow transcending the body into all interconnectedness, but it is very much felt and sensed and um, rooted in the right here. Well, that's so interesting. Mm. I'm just looking at the time and realizing that we get to sign off here in a couple minutes, but oh, I have so many more things I want to ask you. Um, but let me just summarize. I love this, Hillary. Your treatment journey would be, uh, <laughs> I was just thinking, okay, a couple of years of deny, deny, lie, hide, flee <laughs> the nest, um, find a therapist who deeply cares about you, sees you, and doesn't talk about eating disorders. Uh, and then she leaves, relapse, get in some eating disorder treatment, but then flee that and do your own research and find embodiment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nailed it. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's easy peasy. <laughs> right. Can we manualize I, that somehow? Is I that, know. We? <laughs> well, I love that because you know, as you know, you said at the beginning. I think it's so tempting for all of us to look for, gosh, for this really complicated problems. Like, how do we? Is, what's the solution? And I think we keep coming back to, yeah, each person has their own pain, their own painting. It's there are some universals yeah. like that. I see you. I'm going to be here for you. I'm patient. Mm-hmm. You can leave and come back. You can take that path that maybe all of us think isn't the best path, but we're still going to be here for you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's really inspirational. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. I feel so heard. Thank you, Craig. Each person's healing journey is unique, and yet each is the same. Hillary had to flee her childhood home to find herself. She had to develop a healthier sense of autonomy and freedom and agency. And only then was she able to open up to a therapist. And a therapist who had the intuition and wisdom to talk about most everything except body image and food. Meaningful change is really, really hard. It has to start with a willingness to do the work. And the route to this willingness that's where the mystery and the beauty lies. Yeah, our journeys are all so different and also kind of the same. And I find some real solace in that. Thanks for listening to Back from the Abyss. And if you like this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone else who might find meaning in these stories. And also, 
a huge shout out to my good friend and sound guy, Chris Johnson. I couldn't do this without you. <laughs>